0: You're listening to the Bottom Line podcast, where those living with or beyond bowel cancer, as well as health professionals involved in bowel cancer treatment and care, share their inspirational stories and lived experiences with host and bowel cancer survivor, Stephanie. Margaret Fitzherbert was juggling life in state politics when she was diagnosed with stage three bowel cancer in her early 40s community-minded, she has been instrumental in advocating for bowel cancer patients and most recently facilitated a Bowel Cancer Australia webinar for those with young-onset bowel cancer. Today I speak with Margaret about her journey and what state and federal governments need to consider around Australia's second deadliest cancer. Margaret, thanks so much for joining us today on the Bottom Line podcast. it's my pleasure. Good to see you. You too. You and I have so much in common. You have been a long time ambassador for Bowel Cancer Australia. And we were both diagnosed in our early 40s. We both were stage three. We were both very busy career women. You doing probably a bit more of an important job than I was at the time. And we were juggling children, but we were both told that we were too young to have bowel cancer. Could you firstly take us through a little bit of an insight into your story, your bowel cancer diagnosis and treatment and what those treatments were?
1: Sure. Well, I was diagnosed in May of 2014, but it took quite some time to get to that point. I had become aware in early 2013 that I was really anemic and that was unusual for me. I didn't have a history of anemia and... I found out about this purely by accident I was at my GP and you know some blood tests needed to be taken for something and she said why don't I check everything while I'm there while I'm taking blood because you're going to be deficient in something I remember she said that and so she checked everything and it came back but my vitamin d was really really low and my iron was really low and I remember she said to me do you feel tired And I said to her, every woman I know feels tired. So (laughs) she sent me off to a gastroenterologist to check that out. And long story short, it was decided that it was to do with my periods, which I had not thought were particularly problematic, and I remember saying that. But I know now that it's a really common tangent for a lot of women who've got anemia, and I can see the logic of it. But there are other things that can cause anemia. So I was sent off to my, you know, fabulous gynecologist whom I love, and this apparent problem was, was treated. And then much later, and it was April 2014, I was really busy and I was driving and I remember thinking, I feel anemic again. You know, it was this quite distinct achiness in my legs that I recognised as going with that feeling. And so I I went to the GP again. Quite promptly, I went the following week and she did more blood tests and rang me, left a message sounding very worried, saying, Your iron count is really, really low. We've got to get this investigated. So I was sent back to the gastroenterologist. And he, at that stage, ordered a gastroscopy. I think I said that right. And a colonoscopy, which I learned recently is referred to by medical people as a top and tail. Yes. Um, <laughs> which I hadn't known. Anyway, had a top and tail and they found a tumour uh, and it was stage three bowel cancer. And I, I will never forget the gastroenterologist saying it to me that I thought you were too young. Mm. <laughs> which was a very little comfort to me at that stage. You and I have
0: heard that on now so many occasions over the last 10 years
1: it's much too common a story and the other thing is you know I went to have my top and tail feeling you know pretty calm about it all a bit of a glass half full person I wasn't particularly worried and I remember saying to the gastroenterologist, if I were really sick I'd feel it wouldn't I so obviously I'm okay and he said oh probably and he was doing it simply to rule out, you know, some of the more sinister things I was expecting he might find an ulcer or something. But no, it was it was bowel cancer. So this was really, I think, probably the most shocking thing that's ever happened to me in my life. And then, of course, as you know, you immediately leap into this big medical world, which I'd had very little contact with. And I remember looking at the treatment plan that was worked out for me and thinking, that my life was just going to be totally taken over by this stuff. It was literally, you know, the moment when your life changes. Mm. It is. It's that real pivot point,
0: isn't it? At no stage was bowel cancer considered before you had
1: your top and tail? (laughs) Never. No. No, It was never raised. It never occurred to me that it might be bowel cancer. I don't believe it occurred to anybody else. And
0: as we know, Margaret, you know, anemia is is a very clear symptom of bowel cancer.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, as an example, after I was diagnosed, not, not all that long afterwards, my father was found to be very anemic. And because he was over 60 and male and very anemic, he was immediately sent for a colonoscopy, which was totally fine. You know, he had no issues. But it just shows, and you see it in other areas of health, how women's bodies seem to offer so many potential detours when looking for a diagnosis. I think that's a very diplomatic way of putting
0: it. Yes. I was told, oh, it's hemorrhoids because you've had a child recently. Yeah. It's often re- reverting back to that rather than exploring something such as bowel cancer first. It's the last thing they
1: explore. It's it's frustrating. I mean, what I know now is my experience in 2013, 2014 is still happening today to lots of people, lots of women in particular. Yes.
0: Your bowel cancer journey wasn't overly straightforward. There were some substantial bumps along the way. Are there any learnings that you can share that you think would help others faced with the same situation?
1: I guess so. I mean, I I think the first thing I'd say is pay attention to your body because some of those symptoms can be quite subtle. Things like anemia, you know, there are obviously other potential causes for that. And I didn't realise how tired I was until I had an iron infusion and remembered what normal feels like. And a nurse said to me, that's the thing about iron deficiency, it happens gradually. You and your body learn to accommodate it. And I remember feeling very tired but thinking I should go to bed earlier. You know, <laughs> I, should, I should do these things I don't have time to do because I'm very, very busy, which is a silly attitude. So I'd say pay attention to your body I think the other thing is, is sort of an extension of that is to not always take a doctor's or a medical practitioner's advice as the gospel truth, That it is reasonable to question and to get a second opinion and do all those sorts of things. So, you know, for example, I mean, I, I had gone to someone and I had said, yes, I, I'm very anemic and, yes, I am raising, you know, a bit of blood um, when I go to the toilet he didn't examine me in any way but made an assessment of what was wrong. And I remember going away thinking, oh, good, it's all right, you know, and I've heard versions of that from other people. So, you know, be conscious of your body and what you're experiencing, be conscious of the sorts of patterns without cancer that you should be looking for and be willing to, you know, politely question um, a doctor or or other medical practitioner, as you would other professionals, you know, as you would an accountant or, you know, someone who's painting your house, they're not always right. Now, I should say, you know, I've had wonderful medical treatment from talented, passionate, wonderful people, and I'm enormously grateful for that. But there are too many stories of people being fobbed off. And when you're busy, it's kind of easy to go, well, I've done the right thing. I've gone to the doctor. I've raised this. This is what that said. I'm okay. It's something,
0: you know, we discussed it with Nicole Cooper, and she is a very passionate advocate for empowering yourself mm. and politely questioning and being in charge of your own journey, your medical journey. Yeah. And I think that that comes through on this podcast loud and clear from a number of people. You are going to be the only one that is going to fight for you know something that you know you may think is not 100%
1: right precisely
0: I know you went for a routine colonoscopy yesterday so thank you for being (laughs) here (laughs) how often are you having your colonoscopies now and were you anxious about the outcome of that
1: well, initially I was told that I would need to have colonoscopies every year for the rest of my life because of my age when I was diagnosed, but the clinical guidelines around this have changed. So it's now every three years. So yes, it was yesterday. Happy to report that everything is normal. There was nothing, you know, remotely questionable there. Fantastic. <laughs> and do I get anxious about it? I No, I don't actually. Because, And one reason for that is that I know that I'm checked pretty regularly and that bowel cancer tends to grow very slowly and also I know that statistically it's most likely if it's going to come back it will come back in the first couple of years so I feel that I'm being you know looked at closely enough and often enough and it should be all right so I don't tend to worry about it but I think you know when you go back and do that it does tend to remind you of some of the I guess, darker moments along the way. Even if it's a long way in the past, it does remind you of aspects of your treatment or whatever that you probably haven't thought about in a long time. So not particularly stressful, but it's just good to get it done.
0: It is. It's, it's nice to have that confirmation and, and tick that box and be able to move ahead with a clear half i suppose yeah what were some of the the areas that you know when you were sick and you were
1: diagnosed that you really struggled with the treatment schedule at the start was pretty daunting i remember looking at it 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 was given to me i think within a week of the diagnosis and it went for 9 months and it involved stuff almost every day and some of those days there were several appointments and i remember thinking you know, that's not what I had planned. And I knew I'd have to immerse myself in medical stuff in a way that I hadn't in the past. Mm. And that was, it was shocking because it had just, you know, there'd been no suggestion beforehand that we were looking for bowel cancer. Here I was and I, it, it was not the life that I had planned for the next month, nor is it for anybody. I guess I got used to that. And, and my my treatment was that I had uh, chemo and radiation for I think it was about 12 weeks so that's where you wear the infusion bottle every day and get it changed once a week and you go in every day every work day and have radiotherapy so I did that and then there's a bit of a break and then there was a bowel resection and then I had a temporary ileostomy as part of that process after the bowel resection I had mop up chemo as it's called mm-hmm. where you go in and have the needle stuck in your arm and and deal with that and then six months after the original surgery I had the ileostomy reversed and the port taken out so it was it was quite a long process and it it started in very start of June because my diagnosis was at the very end of May uh, 2014 and then the final bit of surgery was in late February and and all of that was mapped out and I'm grateful for that
0: Mm. surgery
1: and and all the treatment that, that went with it but being shown all that I was like my goodness that's confronting very early yes yeah, yeah. so it's a lot to process isn't it one of one of the other things that's tricky is is the reactions you get from other people
0: yes um,
1: because <laughs> you know many people were fantastic to to me and to my family they were truly wonderful and we were shown amazing kindness but there's some people who just don't know what to say mm. and They mean well, but they they say some quite silly things. (laughs) So that was uh, quite an experience. And there's also the fact that, you know, you and I both still had lives to live and jobs to do and things. Yes. That we had to deal with. We had children to think of. There was still a life to be lived. And I think people are starting to understand that cancer doesn't always mean someone who's on death's door curled up in bed with no hair. Yes, to absolutely. Be really blunt about it.
0: No, absolutely. That's the picture many people have, but that is not always the case.
1: And I think in terms of the things people say, you know, the, the, the optimism of people which prompts comments like, well, you'll be fine because you're so strong, because you're a fighter, <laughs> like that's complete rubbish, you mm-hmm. know. <laughs> yes. That, that, that does not really make a big difference.
0: No. I hate that terminology about being brave and fighting. You know, I know my mum, she had yeah. ovarian cancer. She didn't fight any less harder than I did, and I survived. It was just dealt very different cards.
1: Yeah, exactly. People around me who I came to realise didn't understand that this had not been caught early. Mm. And I remember one day having a conversation with a, an acquaintance who'd sent me a message saying, oh, you know, good luck, and I said all the right things, and then said, but you're very lucky it's been caught early. on nice did you get that idea from? Um, and <laughs> I uh, sort of sent a message back saying, thank you, that's really kind of you, but actually it hasn't been caught early. And then I got a message back telling me that it had. I'm like, where on earth do you get this from?
0: <laughs> and also to respond when you're knee-deep in it.
1: But Everyone deals with these things differently. I mean, I can think of someone I know really well who I've known for years and years and years who to this day has never said anything about it to me, which I just (laughs) just think shows poor social skills, to be honest. Yes. Yeah, all these things about the reactions are really interesting and you spend a lot of time navigating that. Yes, you do. That can be quite draining in a way. But having said that, you know, we experience the greatest kindness from so many people just extraordinary kindness which
0: does help it really helps oh it helps enormously to know that you've got that support system and that people care you were a public figure how did this impact you and your young family when you were navigating this
1: yeah interesting times actually i had just got pre-selection to run for a state seat in the upper house of the victorian parliament when i was diagnosed so i was in a very happy place um, when this diagnosis happened. And the diagnosis was about a month after the pre-selection and I was utterly shocked. You know, my doctor didn't expect this diagnosis. I didn't expect this diagnosis. And I decided that it was a very unusual situation, But that I would just commit to the, the treatment and I'd be open about what was happening to me. And I would hope that this was going to be You know, in the language of the time that I remember using that, this would be a health blip and that I would recover and I would go on to have a healthy and useful life. So I also thought there was no reason for me to hide what was happening, but I actually couldn't hide it and I didn't see why I should. And I'd been told at the time of my diagnosis at stage three that it is treatable and curable. And if that changes, we'll tell you. And I was conscious that it was an upper house seat. So even if you know, I got elected, and and then I was too sick to continue. You know, it would mean a casual vacancy procedure, not a by-election. So I was open about what was happening to me, which made me a very unusual political candidate. Yes. At the same time, I I didn't want to be you know the brave council lady. I used to joke about this with my friends. You don't want to be the brave council lady. You just you just want to be a normal person. Hmm who's sort of doing their best but has a good prognosis and also I think all of that is partly why people thought it was early and also because people can't see the physical effect on you you know they they couldn't see that at times I had an infusion bag or whatever but it was challenging one, one, one bit that was quite strange was that the date that I'd been given for when they were going to flip the switch and work out who had won the seats changed I rang up to sort of see if I could find out what time of day it was and they said to me actually it's this day and it was a day I was meant to have chemo so I couldn't actually go and you know you can change chemo arrangements if you need to but that's probably not a very good reason anyway it was too late couldn't be done it was too late in the day to do it so I sent my husband along to watch what was happening and to send me a text and I remember going into that chemo session feeling so nervous because there were two big things like there was chemo for a start and secondly you know someone's gonna send me a text at some point <laughs> telling me mm. what's happened and so I was literally sitting there on a, a chemo drip and i I was getting text messages and I I did I'd been advised you've probably won, but you don't know until I actually push the button and the computer <laughs> says yes or no as the test Sits it out. <laughs> so I got this message while I was sitting there that I'd been elected. And I remember looking around the ward thinking I might have just bitten off too much on this occasion. <laughs> and I started getting phone calls from people, and I'm trying to be respectful of the other people around me, of course, and, you know, who are all fighting their own battles and having their own treatment, and it was fairly quiet in there. And I remember someone ringing me from what was obviously a car on the hands-free, and they were laughing and saying, congratulations, this is fantastic. And after a while they said, you don't sound very excited. Why, why are you whispering? And I said... Because I'm in a chemo, I'm in it. went, oh. <laughs> oh, Margaret. More seriously, I mean, one of the reasons why I approached it the way I did is that I had three kids. The youngest of whom is four, and I decided we needed to make this normal for them. You know, cancer is a really scary word, and kids are very perceptive, and I thought we can't hide this from them. We have to make it normal. Everyone does it differently other people do it quite differently sometimes I know but what we decided to do was to say to them that I was unwell, uh, that it was an illness called cancer, that we thought the doctor had said I would probably get better but it was going to take a while and I was going to take medicine but it was going to go into my arm instead of me swallowing it. So we tried to sort of you know, normalize all of that, and generally that worked. but we we didn't I didn't want my kids to have any sense that we just couldn't talk about this. you know that mum's got a problem we can't talk about, and it. it's serious and scary. So we kept it pretty normal. Our eldest child was about twelve, so had a much greater insight into the significance of the word as well. So you know we just sort of managed that as as well as we could for the kids, but I think generally, trying to make it normal, made it better for them and better for me, not something that couldn't be talked about or had to be hidden or anything like that.
0: We did the same, you know, as as much as you could keep it normal because, you know, I had a two-year-old jumping around with attached to... You know, a chemo bag, so, yeah. and an ileostomy bag as well. So, <laughs> oh, double the challenge. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> you are so passionate about awareness and raising awareness for bowel cancer, and you and I have had many a conversation. You're a real behavioural change maker. What do you think are the key tension points between bowel cancer patients and government? Why is it not more broadly recognised and understood, I suppose?
1: Yeah it's an interesting question I've thought about this one a lot I don't have all the answers to this but I think it's a fairly invisible cancer despite being one of the most common cancers for both men and women I think the gender-based cancers get more attention and I understand the reasons for that there's a an obvious community that can you know develop around those causes and all credit to them frankly I'm really impressed by what some of the gender-based cancers have achieved and particularly in the case of prostate cancer you know the the improvement there in terms of outcomes has been really rapid in recent years and that's great to see and that's because of a really passionate community of men got behind that cause and made it happen and that's impressive. Bowel cancer doesn't have that and I think also there is still a stigma attached to it and one thing that does annoy me is that whenever it comes up, you know, people make little jokes about it. Mm-hmm. And you think we would not do that about breast cancer or prostate cancer? No. Nope. We don't do that. But people feel comfortable making a little joke about it and what that says is there's an awkwardness about this sort of cancer. They're
0: uncomfortable.
1: Mm. Yeah. And it, it's 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 frustrating. I'm old enough to remember the days when my grandmother and her friends would whisper about breast cancer because it wasn't something that was discussed openly as it is today and I'm glad it is it should be because that saves people's lives but I see an element of that stigma attached to bowel cancer and I think that that is one reason why despite the fact that there's a diagnostic test and there's treatment which are blessings compared to where other forms of cancer find themselves so I, th- I think Those two things contribute to the issue here.
0: We've spoken a lot about timely colonoscopy and you're a huge part of that. You've worked with Bowel Cancer Australia to help advocate for the wait times. What is it that you'd like to see
1: the state and federal governments implement to reduce these wait times? There's a couple of things. The first is in Victoria where I'm from, colonoscopies aren't counted as part of elective surgery. And therefore, you don't have the scrutiny of public reporting of waiting lists. So I think that's the first thing, because what gets measured gets done. But I think the other thing is, as counting them, if you count them as elective surgery, then those wait lists are managed in a different way. There's some central oversight, which I'm not convinced there is at the moment. I did a bit of FOI on this some years ago and discovered that the health department in Victoria wasn't managing waiting lists for colonoscopies, which I thought was extraordinary. I would have thought that they would, but they don't. Uh, They didn't at that time, which was 2018, and I don't believe that they do now. It's different in other states. So I think that's one of the things I'd like to see, I guess, is a very careful look at what happens in all the different states and how this is treated and how these waiting lists can be improved in some ways so that we don't see the sorts of, frankly, horrific cases, uh, like, you know, a woman who waited more than two years, you know, for a colonoscopy on the Mornington Peninsula and was then found to have stage 3 bowel cancer. You know, that should not be happening. So that's one of the things. The second thing is that the wait lists were really long before COVID. This has been a hidden problem for a long time. So there really needs to be a concerted effort to not just measure but manage those waiting lists because people will die and have advanced cancers because they have to wait for so long. So this needs to be a very careful strategy of government. Now, that's not going to be easy. The health workforce is exhausted. You know, they've been asked to give until it hurts and then give again throughout the the COVID crisis. But this is an emerging crisis, as Bowel Cancer Australia has pointed out, and it means that sadly in the future, if we don't do something about this, there's going to be very real consequences for people who are today waiting on a waiting list. It needs attention desperately.
0: Margaret, recently you moderated two highly successful Bow Cancer Australia webinars with young onset patients and healthcare professionals. What insights stood
1: out for you most about these? There were many first of all it was such a inspiring group of people really interesting inspiring passionate and just dealing with so much going on in their lives uh, so i guess that's one of the things that i really took away from it i was struck by how many young people are affected i knew that but it's different when you are speaking to people who are, you know, diagnosed in their 20s, early 30s, you know, which is significantly younger than you and I were and we were considered young, there were the themes of delay that it was so hard to get a diagnosis, even when people were very diligent about their own bodies and went back several times, which, again, is what all the stats tell us with with this form of cancer. And a couple of people in particular who I'm, I'm convinced are only alive because someone in their, in their life said, no, don't accept this answer, go back there is something wrong. You know, in one case, someone's uh, fiancé who was a nurse said, no, no, go back and insist on having a colonoscopy. And he did. Um, And, you know, was later found to have stage four cancer. Um, Just extraordinary stories. It was pretty clear that gender's an issue in terms of diagnosis. You know, there were too many (laughs) rabbit holes provided by the female body for unfortunate detours in terms of diagnosis. And, You know, pregnancy is another point where women sometimes are told that the symptoms that they're reporting are likely pregnancy related. And it turns out that there's some form of cancer, be it bowel cancer or another. And I think something that uh, the very wise Nicole Cooper said, and I'm going to paraphrase here, but the point she made about the onus really being on younger patients to know what the symptoms are, pay attention to their bodies and then go along to doctors and advocate sometimes repeatedly Mm. is actually a lot to ask. It is. A lot to ask. And it was only when she expressed it in quite that way that I thought, yeah, it's quite fascinating actually, particularly when there's so much promotion of the screening program for people aged 50 and over. Mm -hmm. And I wonder whether the success of that in some ways reinforces the idea that it is you know, very, very, very unlikely that a younger person will have bowel cancer. But, you know, as we know, the numbers are rising for reasons we don't fully understand both here and overseas.
0: Finally, Margaret, i like to ask three top tips that they want people to
1: take from this podcast. What would your top three be? The first thing I'd say is that people need to be vigilant about their bodies and be willing to follow up. You know, like don't don't keep putting off, paying attention to what may be some subtle symptoms because you're busy and you've got a lot on and you're chasing after the kids or whatever it is. The second thing I would say, as much as I love doctors, they don't always know best. And by that I mean there are people that I know today who are alive simply because they have politely challenged what they were told, at least initially, and they have um, pushed for a colonoscopy or they have got a second opinion or they've asked their doctor again Uh, because they're concerned about symptoms and they know they're going best. So I think that would be the second thing I would say. And the third thing I would say is that you're not alone. There's quite a community out there. Um, This is a very common cancer, regrettably, but what that does mean is that there's other people who've walked in your shoes before. Now Cancer Australia is, is one place where you can get advice and support and connect into that community. And there are also some great online communities as well, one of which I'm part of, that also provide that sort of support and knowledge. So I guess they're the three things I would say to people.
0: Thank you, Margaret. All very fabulous tips and great advice for our listeners. Margaret, you have been a great support to me over the years. You are an inspiration and the work that you do for us with Bow Cancer Australia and helping to raise awareness is very much appreciated. And I love our chats and I hope today our listeners got something fabulous from you and thank you for sharing.
1: Oh, thank you, Steph. That's really nice of you to say that. It's good to be able to help in some way. I feel really lucky to be here and to be healthy and, you know, enjoying all that life has to offer. And I'm just conscious that not everybody is so fortunate and it's good to be able to help in ways that I can. And it's always nice to have a chat with you. It's a shame this one didn't involve a glass of wine, but maybe next time. (laughs) We will make sure
0: that we have that one. We've got lots to discuss. (laughs) We do. Thanks so much, Margaret. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the Bottom Line podcast. To find out more about bowel cancer or for support or simply to donate, please go to bowelcanceraustralia.org.